Providing for your family is a top priority. But what happens when you need affordable health care? Christian Healthcare Ministries could save you up to 40% today. As a member, you can choose your provider without network restrictions. Sign up at your convenience with our anytime enrollment. Join a Christian community that supports each other's medical expenses, offering peace of mind as you prioritize what's most important. Enroll now at yourchm.org. This is the Fox News Rundown Extra. And Lisa Brady. After all of COVID's catastrophic impacts, we may not want to think about an even deadlier pandemic, but some health officials say we should, as global outbreaks of bird flu continue. It's led to the deaths of tens of millions of birds, sometimes culled to help stop the spread, with a significant impact on egg and turkey farmers, among others. And it's already spilled over to mammals, with a handful of human infections. This is also fueling more concern about the risks of -of gain-of-function research. So we got perspectives from two doctors about avian flu, pandemic preparedness, and how COVID lessons can help or hurt. Dr. Robert Redfield is former director of the CDC, and Dr. Marty McCary is a professor at Johns Hopkins University and Fox News medical contributor. We made some edits for time and thought you might like to hear the whole thing. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the weekday Fox News Rundown podcast. Now here's Dr. Robert Redfield on the Fox News Rundown Extra. All right, I'm going to dive in with questions, okay? It's fine. I know that you've been calling for a moratorium on gain-of-function research, so I wanted to start with that. Why now? Is this strictly because of COVID, or were you already concerned about this before the pandemic? You know, Lisa, I've uh, been concerned about this, um, you know, uh, you know, for quite quite some time now, ever since uh, 2012, when the European scientists published uh, the changes that one needed to make in bird flu in order to make it highly pathogenic and transmissible for humans. And uh, normally we have a species barrier which can help protect us from new zoonotic diseases becoming significant human pathogens. But uh, in, in when one uses gain-of-function research, you can really get around that species barrier. And you can change the organism so that uh, you can, as, we've, as you've seen with COVID, that organism is really extremely infectious for humans. And I don't believe that that happened as part of nat- nat- natural evolution and the species barrier. I think it's much more likely that it happened as a consequence of teaching the virus how to be more transmissible for humans in the lab. So I think it's uh, the premise that the supporters of gain-of-function research that we need to do this to be ahead of countermeasures and for therapeutics and vaccines. I, I really don't think that's a valid argument. I think with the technology that we have today, we can develop countermeasures very, very rapidly. And uh, I think it's... Uh, I just think it's... Uh, uh, not thoughtful for us to be uh, highly en- engaged gain-of-function research. I've always argued if, if it needs to be done, let the broader society debate it and determine that they think it's the the, the positive uh, impact of gain-of-function research outweighs the negative. Uh, I happen to not agree with that assessment, but I do think there should be a broader 
societal debate and and to determine whether there's any advantage to gain a function research. I'm still on record uh, believing that the current COVID pandemic was a consequence of gain of function research in science and not a consequence of natural spillover. To the extent that it may have started with a lab leak, one senator, Kentucky Republican Ram Paul, has said that a former high-ranking CDC official told him they expect there will be another leak and that as much as half the world's population could die in another pandemic. Do you have similar fears? Well, I think the the position that I would take is that um, we're going to have another pandemic. And I, I've taken the position that I think the next pandemic is what I call the great pandemic. I consider the current COVID pandemic is kind of the lesser pandemic. And the great pandemic will be bird flu, which will uh, uh, learn how to infect humans and then learn how to be efficiently transmitted to human to human. The species barrier, I think, that could prevent that from a long time, for a long time. But in the presence of gain of function research and the fact that the papers were published in 2012, which depict the exact amino acid sequence changes we need to do to change that virus so it goes to a 5 to 50% mortality in humans, I think is, again, one of the strong reasons I think we need to have a moratorium on gain-of-function research. And not just in the United States. I think it would be useful for the U.S. to lead a coalition to restrict gain-of-function research on a global scale. There have already been some human cases of avian flu, rare cases, not human transmission so far, correct? Um, are we already That's heading right. for a bird flu pandemic, though? Is, is the door already open? Well, we sure have it in birds, you know, and, and you've seen the, the economic cost of that to the poultry industry, turkeys and chickens uh, on a global scale. Uh, the fact is there is that species barrier and there's a number of uh, mutations that need to occur for the bird flu virus, whether it's H5N1 or H7 or H9, there's a variety of them that are currently circulating in birds. Uh, but they're very inefficient in infecting humans. And when they do infect humans, the human doesn't transmit to another human based on the way the virus is now. But with those mutations, if they occur, then that virus could gain the ability to have uh, a significant bird-to-human transmission and then human-to-human transmission. And that's really the issue. Well, uh, right now, as you say, we just had another isolated case in the United States of uh, a, a poultry worker that got uh, H, H, H5N1, but that individual didn't infect anybody else. And, and, and that's the current situation. But with gain-of-function research, you could take that virus in the laboratory and you could change that virus so it would in fact infect humans and it would in fact have the ability to go efficiently human to human. And I think that's the real risk. That's the next great pandemic. That's the pandemic that is gonna make people look back and kind of wish that we had the COVID pandemic again, because again, the mortality is gonna be substantially greater than COVID. There have been reports that the U.S. stockpile of H5N1 shots is not nearly enough. What can you tell me about the status of that stockpile? Yeah, I would say that we don't have adequate um, vaccines stored for H5N1. 
H5N1, not only the the amount of the stockpile, but also the vaccine that's been stockpiled, uh, how well it works. I will say that one of the advantages of the mRNA vaccine strategy that was developed and operationalized during COVID is the ability to make a new vaccine for uh, a bird flu uh, when it occurs is something that when I was CDC director, I used to, you know, really worry about because traditionally prior to mRNA vaccine development, it would take maybe six to 18 months for us to have a vaccine. So what you would do in the interim is just do a body count. Now we can develop a vaccine really relatively quickly, two, four, six, eight, 10, 12 weeks. Uh, But you are right that we are not prepared for the bird flu pandemic when it comes. We don't have the countermeasures stored to the degree we need. And it's a horrifying thought if we're not very well prepared um, that this thing could be coming that would be so bad that it would make us sort of, you know, wish for COVID as bad as that was. Um, so what about what about other preparedness? What more should the U.S. government and, and the world be doing? Well, yeah, I think this is really important. And I've tried to begin to highlight this, uh, that my own view is the national security of the United States and the way of life uh, that we all have is much more threatened by biosecurity than it is by the traditional concerns of China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, and that our nation ought to invest proportional to that threat, and we haven't. We don't have a serious uh, integrated strategy for what I call to defend our nation from biosecurity, and we need to, we need to develop that. Uh, and my own view is that needs, having spent 23 years in the armed forces and the Department of Defense, I do believe strongly that we need to build a biosecurity defense program within the Department of Defense that is proportional to the threat, which, again, if you look at our traditional defense strategy that we have for Russia, China, Iran and North Korea and other potential state actors, uh, we build a fairly extensive defense strategy. We need to really build a similar defense strategy and fundamental to that is 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 also building what I call the private-public partnerships uh, with the private sector to be able to provide the countermeasures we need. We, you know, we get airplanes and we get weaponry from our partnership with Boeing and Northrop and Raytheon and General uh, Dynamics and General Atomic, all of these private sector companies that make up our defense industry. We need to have the exact same thing now in place for biosecurity and that means we should have, you know, existing uh, partnerships with diagnostic companies, antiviral companies, uh, vaccine companies that are part of our global health. And we're not prepared. We haven't even given serious consideration to it. More broad. Sadly, I would say, Lisa, mm-hmm. the reality is, as someone who's tried to sound the bell here, I, I do realize that there's a high probability that I won't be successful and that the, our nation won't wake up to the threat until after we have the great pandemic. And then the, our nation will wake up to the threat. But this is a real threat. Uh, we do have an opportunity to get prepared. We're currently unprepared. I mean, I ran the CDC, which is the premier public health agency in the world, and we're just woefully underprepared uh, to have a meaningful uh, program in biosecurity. 
What about COVID fallout on the credibility of health officials in general? How concerned are you that the public may ignore future you know, warnings and precautions? Yeah, I think it's, it has to be a high concern. Uh, you know, one of the great casualties of the COVID pandemic was uh, credibility of a number of our institutions, including our public health institutions and our public health leadership. This is one of the challenges. I always tried to say to my colleagues that what we just need to tell the American public is the truth. We don't need to try to package the truth. And I do think some of my colleagues packaged the truth. And as they packaged it, and then that packaging became non-reality, then they lost credibility. And, uh, and so it is a very serious concern. Um, I don't believe our national security biodefense strategy belongs in HHS, and I was part of HHS. I do believe it belongs in the Department of Defense. And, and I do think hopefully our nation will see the value over the next uh, several years and begin to build what I consider a comprehensive biosecurity national defense strategy, which will fully engage the full capability of the private sector to be part of it. I remind people that when the COVID pandemic started, Korea immediately had the diagnostic needs of their nation met. And we were way behind in building the diagnostic capacity. And you have to ask, well, why was Korea so ahead of the game? And the reason the Korea was so ahead of the game was in 2016-17, Korea had an imported case of MERS, which is a coronavirus, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syncytial Virus. And when that imported case came into Korea, when it was all said and done, they had to shut down Seoul. They had over $10 billion loss of economic loss. I think they ended up with about 180 cases, fairly high mortality. Um, but during that episode, what they did was they formed a partnership between the government of Korea and the diagnostic private sector. So when COVID came, they already had that private-public partnership established, and the government could just sort of pull the lever and ask the diagnostic uh, companies to step in and provide the uh, diagnostic support that the nation needed. That's what we need in our nation. We don't have it in our nation. We also need to have it for uh, antiviral therapeutics. We also need to have it for uh, vaccine development, very similar to what we have uh, right now in the Defense Department when we need airplanes or missiles or, or air defense or ammunition. Uh, we have those contracts with the private sector. And this is what I mean by really trying to have a major wake-up call that you know one of the real roles of government in my view is to protect the national security of this nation and our citizens way of life and and we are really lacking in our preparedness when it comes to biosecurity i think this kind of feeds into everything you've said about that but but broadly are there lessons we have not learned from covid mistakes that were made that were in danger now of repeating? Well, I think the biggest, I mean, there's a number of mistakes that were made, but I think the, in my view, the biggest, biggest error was a, an aggressive attempt not to have any honest debate. There was an aggressive point of view to come out with a single point of view uh, and to have different people pontificate what that point of view was, and then, you know, cancel or 
or sideline people had a different point of view. I mean, I'm a good example of it. I, I strongly argued against closing schools. I was only the CDC director. CDC, many people at CDC argued for closing schools. Um, you know, a few jurisdictions like the Archdiocese of Baltimore, I was able to keep the schools open. Uh, but most of the uh, governors and, and jurisdictions elected to close schools. I tried to argue that the public health interest of K through 12 was far exceeded by keeping schools open. Um, you saw the same thing with the economy. Some of us argued that we take, you know, 15 days to uh, step back and see how we can continue activities in a safe and responsible way, but didn't advocate to shut everything down, although shutting everything down prevailed. And there was a tendency, and the media played a huge role in this, which they really squelched any honest debate. You either agreed with the party line, largely that was pontificated by certain uh, public health spokespeople, or you were considered a conspirator. I mean, when I suggested that the COVID uh, pandemic originated from a laboratory that was educating the virus to infect humans and it accidentally leaked, you know, I was aggressively uh, canceled um, for raising that point of view, both by the media, but sadly, even you know, by the scientific community, which was really antithetical to science, that they wouldn't even have a debate about it. Everyone had to get on board that they believed that this virus had to come from that natural spillover. Otherwise, you were a conspirator. So I think the biggest mistake was to not allow honest debate and not allow uh, sort of truthfulness to the American public to tell them the truth of what we know and what we don't know. Uh, we didn't have to suggest we knew more than we knew. Um, and, uh, you know, the second mistake, which you'd already, uh, raised is we were, and we still are today, we're woefully unprepared for, uh, a, a serious, uh, pandemic. We're woefully unprepared. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people believed that, uh, SARS, that, I mean, COVID was going to be like SARS and MERS and both of those pandemics really fizzled out pretty rapidly. So no one really jumped in to realize that this was going to be a significant pandemic that's not going to fizzle out and COVID is going to be a significant viral threat, uh, you know, for the rest of time. Uh, luckily for us, its mortality rates more like 0.1%. But bird flu, when it hits us, is going to have a mortality rate at least of 5%. Former CDC Director Robert Redfield, sounding the alarm. Thank you, sir, for your time. Yeah, Lisa, thanks for having me. God bless. Yeah, bye-bye. Now let's hear from Dr. Marty McCary, Johns Hopkins University professor and Fox News medical contributor. The first thing I'm wondering is, how would a bird flu pandemic, if it happened, um, compare to the coronavirus pandemic? How would it be different? Well, bird flu is generally a strain of influenza, so it would follow the principles of the common flu Generally speaking, with viruses that cause illness in humans, when you're sick, you're contagious, which means when you're not sick, you're not spreading it. COVID was unique in the sense that it had asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic spread. That is, you gave it to people even though you felt great. That's probably unlikely with any potential future virus that's to circulate. And it's probably nature's way of containing uh, an infection when you're sick. What do you do? You you lay down, you're tired, you're not as active, and you're not as likely to contaminate others. 
right? I guess we can hope that we wouldn't have <laughs> another asymptomatic pandemic, if you will, because um, it certainly makes it a whole lot trickier. There have been some human cases already um, of avian flu, especially the H5N1, if I have that right. However, not transmission between humans, correct? Is that when the real trouble begins? That's right. When we have human-to-human transmission, we call that community spread or community transmission. As of yet, it doesn't appear that we've observed that, although it's hard to trust what comes out of China. Um, Professor Gao, who's sort of the head of the Chinese CDC, is the same person who was head of the Chinese CDC when COVID was brewing over there, and we were getting a lot of bad information out of China. But generally speaking, um, we know that most viruses are spread during the symptomatic phase, so it could be some combination. But we'll see whether or not there's any community transmission in the coming weeks. So far, I think even in the rare U.S. cases, what's the thinking that people have been catching it because they're handling poultry infected with the virus? There are... um, pathogens spread from handling poultry. But by and large, the bird flu virus is spread as a respiratory virus. It crosses over from animals into humans, and then it's spread in a respiratory format. Handling uh, meat like chicken causes other infections like salmonella. So when you prepare scallops or prepare uh, chicken or an meats and you don't wash your hands and then you're making salad at the same time you're cooking raw meat, that's a well-known vector of transmission. And it's something that reminds us to wash our hands like crazy. If you remember when COVID came, public health officials retreated to the position of, well, we don't really understand a lot, but just wash your hands like crazy. With um, many infections, we do know that that is an effective intervention, especially with the influenza family of viruses. I did want to ask you about the food supply, um, because health officials generally have said the avian flu is not a risk to the food supply in terms of contaminating food sources. I mean, it does lead to culling millions of birds in an effort to stem the spread of it in poultry populations. Could it also risk contaminating the food supply at some point? Or you know, does, does a virus just not work that way? Every virus is different. So uh, many of these viruses that live in nature cross over into other species that are non-human. So for example, bird flu has been detected in a fox. Um, It's been detected in other animals with previous strains. And so there is a concern that it could infect other species that are a food reservoir for the food supply. Now, um, people often think that Swine flu, it means, you know, that you get it from eating pork, but that's not necessarily the case. Oftentimes, the names just come from the original vector of transmission and not from the the common way in which community spread occurs. What makes today's bird flu any more of a concern than previous versions? Is it that it's been so deadly in, in birds, for instance? We're going to have to wait and see. Right now, the the country is sort of very sensitive about any novel viruses, given that we've lived through a really terrible experience with COVID. So viruses sort of 
establish themselves in different ways. We can notice rapid transmission, and then it becomes more deadly as it mutates or vice versa. It can start with minimal transmission, but appear to be deadly early on and then become easier to transmit. So we're going to have to wait and see. And I think one of the big lessons we've learned from COVID is it's hard to make projections early on. And when we try to do it, we're usually wrong. What about preparedness after the COVID experience? How prepared are we for an avian flu pandemic? Well, first of all, it is a certainty that we are going to be dealing with a future epidemic and probably even a bird flu epidemic at some point within a generation, we're probably going to see a bird flu epidemic. The current avian influenza has been around a long time and has infected over a hundred different bird species. So there's a lot of transmission in the animal kingdom. And when it crosses over into humans, we're sort of caught blindsided. What we have to do is quickly identify the genetic code of this new virus and then figure out if we can develop some vaccine or at least understand it's how how fragile it is, how stable it is in, in the air, and how likely it is to, say, dissipate on surfaces. In other words, how contagious it is. So if you look at our lifetime, if you look at sort of the past generation, within a generation we have seen a dozen pandemics. We've seen polio and SARS and MERS and Ebola and Zika and H1N3 in the past and other infections. So it is highly likely that we're going to see it almost a certainty that within a lifetime, we will probably see another pandemic. The hope is that it's just not as dangerous. It doesn't have as high of an infection fatality rate. When we look back at COVID, the overall infection fatality rate was somewhere in the range of one to two-tenths of 1%. That is about one in 1,000 to one in 2,000. I'm sorry, one in 1,000 uh, to one in 500 individuals died. Now, we knew, know that 80% of the deaths, deaths were in people over 65, and when you get over age 70, that's where we saw the vast majority of the deaths. So an important lesson from COVID is we need to figure out quickly who's at risk. Is it young, healthy children, as was with the Spanish flu of 1918? Or is it uh, older, vulnerable people with weakened immune systems? That was the case of COVID-19. The U.S. does have a stockpile of H5N1 shots, not believed to be nearly enough, Um are those vaccines current enough or do we need new vaccines? And has that development process changed for the better with COVID? I think the idea that we have to reach for the shelf and get a vaccine, no matter what the vaccine is, without any research, we just need to have a vaccine ready, has become a mindset that is popular right now, but not very well supported with medical data. So there are um, proposed influenza, bird flu vaccines, but we really need to know what we're working with. Now, the good news is you can design an mRNA vaccine or other vaccines in a matter of weeks. When COVID first came about and the genetic sequence was made available in January of 2020, within a couple of weeks, they designed the vaccine in a laboratory with computer simulation that led to the um, COVID-19 mRNA vaccine. 
And it was, everyone thinks it was Pfizer that developed it. It was actually BioNTech, a German company. And so you can move rapidly. A lot of it is the regulatory hurdles. It's the uh, randomized trials. It's the clinical studies that establish the effectiveness of it. Given the massive distrust in public health right now, I do think we're going to need to see good clinical trials uh, before a vaccine is widely adopted. Because of distrust um, in health officials and the medical community that um, sort of evolved, uh, if you will, during the COVID pandemic, are you concerned that the public may ignore any necessary precautions um, that are recommended in a future pandemic um, or, or, or the next vaccine? Yes. There is a group of the uh, people in the United States that will not um, take any novel vaccine now that is developed and promoted by the CDC, in part because they feel that they've been lied to about the COVID-19 pandemic. And in fact, when you look at the claims of public health officials and the actual scientific data, people were lied to. One of the greatest propagators of misinformation on COVID-19 was the CDC itself, was the United States government, ignoring natural immunity, um, suggesting that everybody was at equal risk, when now we know that the riskful difference between a young, healthy child and an older uh, comorbid individual was a 10,000-fold difference in risk. So people have a right to be skeptical right now. I hope we can restore good scientific methodology and we can uh, rec make recommendations based on not, not group think and wear positions like a political badge, but instead based on the evidence from good clinical studies. So the new uh, bird flu vaccine that's um, in development may be something that we may need to turn to and recommend. I'd love to see the data before we make that recommendation. But these are all conversations that are happening right now. Are you hopeful that, you know, trust in the scientific community, at least for, for those people who, who lost it, um, can be restored without something drastic having to happen, like a high mortality rate? It's going to take a big apology. You know, I'm a practicing physician, and I can tell you, we physicians have a long experience with getting things wrong, making mistakes, um, having to explain to somebody that things didn't go with uh, the way with their care as they should have. And what I've found, Lisa, is that when you are incredibly honest with somebody, they can be very forgiving. They just want that direct honesty. And right now, they have not gotten it. Uh, we had Novak Jokovic just a matter of a month ago, last month, denied entry into the United States because he did not have the COVID vaccine, even though he's had COVID twice and has natural immunity. And he's at the ultra low risk for any COVID complications. As a matter of fact, no professional athlete has ever died of COVID worldwide. And so when you look at the sort of absurdity of many of these um, public health recommendations that they're still holding on to today, long after the data has been clear on the effectiveness of natural immunity, people have a right to be skeptical. I think public health officials need to come clean and be honest, or we're just going to need a fresh group of individuals to start making recommendations 
that uh, are free of the baggage of the previous public health leadership that was not straightforward. Just one other quick thing. I wanted to ask you about something the former CDC director, Dr. Robert Redfield, said. He's called for a moratorium on gain-of-function research, arguing it can cause a pandemic um, by removing the barrier and a pathogen's jump from nature to humans, essentially. Should the world be more concerned about that kind of research? Yes. Uh, Ever since it became possible to manipulate the, the genetic code within a virus and to make it more dangerous, more contagious, more lethal. The public should have should be very concerned. And so this type of research, which really juices up viruses and makes them more dangerous, should not occur. This is research that should not occur. Now, people can argue that the term gain-of-function is loose enough that when you do gene therapy for a sickle cell patient in the hospital, that that could technically fall under the category of gain of function because you're you are changing the function of a cell but there are sort of a universal uh, standards out there on the manipulation of viruses to make them more dangerous and they have been outlined by the National Academy of Medicine in a document now known as the seven deadly sins it outlines exactly what people should never do with viruses. Doesn't matter how safe they claim it is in their circumstances that they're doing it, they should never be done. And the Wuhan lab clearly violated several, at least two of those standards and when they were manipulating coronaviruses from bats. Dr. Marty McCary, Johns Hopkins University professor and Fox News medical contributor, thank you so much for your time. Good to be with you, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you, doctor. Have a good one. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.